in this passage, Jesus is describing to his disciples that this matter of salvation will cost himself his own life. And that if you want to be a true follower of Christ, a true believer in Him, it will cost you something as well. It will cost you much sacrifice, much suffering. But in the end, through Christ, through our union with Christ, we will all be victorious. Through the gospel, faith comes. The victory. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. John's County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. We've been in the Gospel of Mark the last several months. We find ourselves in Mark chapter 8. The sermon text this morning is verses 31 through chapter 9 and verse 1, and we began looking at this text last week. So what we'll do this morning is uh, we'll first read it, then we'll pray. I'll review what we spoke about last week, and then we will dig a little bit deeper into the text as we move on. Mark chapter 8, beginning in 31. Now hear the word of God. And he, that is Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's ask the Lord for his help this morning in prayer. Our Father, we come before you this morning as a weak people, a weak people that know we have a strong Savior, and we need Christ, and we rest in Christ, and we look to him this morning. As we look at his life and we look at these remarks that Jesus makes about true discipleship, it should cause within our own hearts an examination of sorts to see even as Paul says whether or not we are even in the faith, whether or not we will go to heaven when we die, whether or not we truly belong to Christ, the Christ we say we follow. So these are sobering words, a sobering passage 
But we pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit and the promises of the gospel, Lord, that these words would bring comfort to our souls this day. We ask all of these things for your glory and for our good, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. In this passage, as we looked at last week and began noting the features of Jesus' words concerning true discipleship, we saw that Jesus describes discipleship, that is, what it means to be a true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, in terminology that is connected with Jesus' own life, a life that obviously involved suffering, a life that involved shame, a life that involved rejection and trials of various sorts, leading all the way up to the crucifixion. Jesus describes in this passage to the disciples and then later a crowd that gathers around him that would have been filled with other disciples, other people who claimed they were his followers. He describes the purpose for which he was sent into the world. He described that in verse 31, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and be killed. And after that, three days, he would rise again. He describes the purpose for which he was sent, which was to atone for the sins of his people. But he also describes what this means for his people. After he is risen from the dead and he ascends to the right hand of his father, God's purpose for his son is a purpose that is lived out among his people. They too will be rejected. They too will be hated by the world. They too will have a cross that they must bear, not at any sort of atoning for their sins, not in the same way that Jesus died upon the cross, But metaphorically speaking, there will be a suffering, there will be a shame, there will be a sacrifice, there will be a cost for all true followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. This flows out of our understanding of the doctrine of our union with Christ. To be united in the death of Christ and to be united in the resurrection of Christ is also to be united in the very life of Christ. Jesus would say, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. If they persecuted me, They're going to persecute you. And Jesus is trying to help the disciples understand this. They have a very earthly sort of political understanding of the kingdom of God, don't they? A very earthly and political understanding of the Messiah, that when Messiah came, he was going to destroy all of Israel's enemies, and he was going to sit on the throne of Israel and defend ethnic Israel. They are beginning to see, the disciples are, that that is not the type of Messiah Jesus came to be that day or even in the future. He came to be a Messiah that was not one who would merely save Israel from their sins and defeat Israel's enemies, but he became a Savior that would save Gentiles, all the nations of the world, and defeat the greatest enemy of all, which is Satan and sin itself. Sinclair Ferguson writes in his commentary on Mark, That following the crucified Christ means following the conquering Christ. Following the crucified Christ means following the conquering Christ who will share with all his people the blessings of his conquest. In this passage, Jesus is describing to his disciples that this matter of salvation will cost himself his own life. 
And that if you want to be a true follower of Christ, a true believer in Him, it will cost you something as well. It will cost you much sacrifice, much suffering. But in the end, through Christ, through our union with Christ, we will all be victorious. Through the gospel, faith comes the victory. Now in understanding Christ's purpose for coming into the world and the purpose for which He sends all His disciples into the world, there are four headings that we've sought to find in this passage and we saw the first two last week we saw number one what we called the rejection and I've already sort of mentioned it but notice in verse 31 he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders the chief priests and the scribes those three groups the elders the chief priests and the scribes cumulatively composed the Sanhedrin that was 70 men of Israel the ruling body of Israel the very leadership that had been set apart for God's people would be the very ones that would kill Jesus as he says in verse 31 he would be killed and after three days rise again then you know, verse 32 says that he said this plainly. That means he didn't mince words. He didn't pull any punches. He had made similar statements in a veiled sort of way in times past. But on this day, he wants to make it very clear to the disciples that his mission into the world will end with rejection. That his very reign as king will begin with rejection. And not just rejection, but arrest, a mock trial, and crucifixion. The glory of which will be seen in the fact that three days later he will rise again from the grave. This was hard for the disciples to accept. It was hard for them to accept that the one that they loved, their master and their rabbi, the one that they had claimed was their Lord, the one they had confessed was their Messiah, would be crucified, that he would be rejected. But even more to the point, they were concerned for their own lives. They were concerned about what this meant for them. They understood that Jesus was Messiah. They understood that they, as the 12 apostles, represented the 12 tribes of the newly reconstituted Israel. They were the leaders of the kingdom of God that had come to earth through Christ, through the Messiah, the one promised from the beginning of time all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 and they knew that if this Messiah was rejected and crucified and if he suffered that they themselves would suffer as well and that is why we see in verses um, 32 and 33 the rebuke we move from the rejection to the rebuke the end of verse 32 says Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him The language here is that of a continual rebuke. He took him aside, as it were, out of the limelight, away from the disciples, to sort of try to persuade Jesus in very strong language. As we noted last week, this is the same sort of language that Jesus would use to rebuke demons when he exercised them out of people. That's the sort of commanding, strong language that Peter is using toward Jesus. Jesus, you don't have to suffer. Jesus, this is not going to be something that you should do. God forbid it, Lord, is the language that is used in the other gospel accounts to describe how strongly Peter's language was toward Jesus. This can't be. You cannot suffer. You cannot die. And of course, Jesus understood that Satan was behind this. 
Jesus understood this was the exact same thing that Satan had offered him in Matthew chapter 4 in his temptation in the wilderness. When Satan offered to Jesus the kingdoms of the world if he would simply bow down, this was akin to exactly what Peter is offering, a sort of kingdom with no suffering. A kingdom that would involve a large following. It would be easy for people to follow a king that involved no suffering for him and no suffering for his people. And that is why in that Matthew 4 occasion, Jesus told Satan to leave. And that's exactly what he tells Peter here in verse 33. Turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. Because Peter was cooperating with the devil. Peter was offering Jesus the type of kingdom that the devil had offered Jesus. A kingdom with no suffering, a purely materialistic political kingdom with no spiritual consequences, no suffering, no atonement, no salvation. Peter didn't understand fully what he was doing, but Peter was denying the necessity of Christ's crucifixion, the necessity of atonement for sins. This was, in essence, the very words of the devil, this rebuke. By Peter. And Jesus made sure the other disciples saw his rebuke of Peter because they were involved with this just as much as Peter was. They just didn't have the courage and boldness that Peter did. They felt the same way. Jesus says, Get behind me, Satan. And then he offers this explanation, the end of verse 33. He says, For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You are all concerned about your ambition, your power, your prestige, the acclaim of man, the applause of the religious establishment, the applause of other Jewish people. Your mind is not set on the things of God, but on the things of man. You have a narrow outlook on what the kingdom of Christ is to look like. You have a narrow understanding of what it means to be a true follower of Christ. This serves as a warning to all of us that if we are not careful, we can confuse the purpose and mission of Christ. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. In fact, that is the central verse of Mark's gospel. Mark 10 verse 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Jesus did not come to set up some kingdom where he would only be heralded as the great king and only honored and only worshipped. No, Jesus came to be rejected so that he could suffer for the sins of his people. So that he then could rise from the grave, ascend to the Father, and then be glorified and honored and worshipped by sinners who had been redeemed. Our view of the kingdom must be a view of the kingdom that is not attached to the things of this world. A view of the kingdom that does not set our mind on the things of man, but that set our mind on the things of God, that have an eternal perspective. To, to put it to you very simply, what is it that you live for? What, what is it that motivates you every morning you get out of bed? What is your goal in life? What is your agenda in life? What are your ambitions? 
What is it that you set your heart on? What is it that you set your mind on? What is it that dominates your conversations? And whatever your answer is to those questions is the God that you serve. And that will either be the God of the Bible or it may be the God of materialism or the God of ambition or the God of power or the God of money or the God of fame or the the God of prestige. But whatever it is, if it's anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ, if it's anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ that motivates you breathing and living and doing, then you are an idolater and you are not a true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus had very hard sayings for the disciples because among the group that followed him, among the disciples that followed him were some that eventually deserted him in John chapter 6. He even had one of his own company, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. And so it would be foolish for us to think this morning that everyone who claims the name of Christ, everyone who professes to be a believer in Christ, everyone who says they are a disciple of Christ is truly a disciple of Christ. That would be a foolish conclusion to come to. And Jesus would be very clear in the verses that follow That to be a true follower of Christ is going to require immense sacrifice. It will cost you something in order to enter the kingdom of God. It will cost you something to be a true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning, you must be willing to get rid of everything that you love for the sake of Christ. Or you may not be a true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we move this morning from the rejection... Jesus speaks about his own rejection to the rebuke where he rebukes Peter for Peter's rebuke of him. Now number three, to the requirement. And really these are requirements. Jesus needs to set the record straight regarding the requirements for true discipleship. He understands that a wrong view of Messiahship, as Peter and the other apostles somewhat possess, is going to lead to a wrong view of discipleship. If you misunderstand who Jesus is and what his purpose and mission was in coming into this world, then you're going to misunderstand what true discipleship is. And what Jesus says here doesn't just apply to the apostles, it applies to all disciples. So as verse 34 indicates, Jesus began calling the crowd to him with the disciples. So this is something that Jesus is going to address, not just to the 12, but to the larger band of followers. He now has a captive audience, and he is going to teach them and preach to them what true discipleship consists of. He begins by laying down a very basic principle regarding discipleship here in verse 34. From verse 34 flows four statements that clarify the nature of true discipleship. But first, notice the principle. It's very clear in verse 34 that this is what you could call Christ's proposition to his sermon. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. I mean, this comes right after Peter's rebuke of Jesus, you don't have to suffer, Jesus' rebuke of Peter, yes, I do, and now he turns, brings the disciples in, brings the crowd in, and says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his own cross and follow me. 
that a true confession of Christ will involve a crucifixion of sorts. And Jesus says if one truly wants to be a follower of him, or as verse 34 says, come after him, he must, notice your Bibles, deny himself. Now the word deny means to have no association with. It means to disown completely. And of course, what Jesus is including in this is the concept of of self-righteousness, the idea that you can work your way to heaven or earn salvation. It also includes denying your sinful desires and ambitions for the sake of Christ. Paul put it this way, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul understood what it meant to deny oneself being willing to give up everything in your life, to disassociate yourself from friends and maybe even family, to disassociate yourself from dreams and ambitions. To be a true disciple of Jesus means to cast all ambitions and all agendas to the wind. It means to repent of sin. It means to repent of self. It means to turn in total submission to Christ. It is to admit that you have Failed to keep the whole law perfectly. James 2.10 says that if you keep the whole law but stumble in one point, you're guilty of breaking the whole thing. And so you have come to God and you have confessed the wages of sin is death. You have confessed that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, including yourself. You cannot earn your way into heaven. You cannot plead your way into heaven. You are dependent solely upon Jesus Christ. You have denied yourself. To deny yourself places God's will above your own will, his agenda over your agenda. It places Christ on the throne, not self. It is to come to the end of yourself and say, I cannot save myself. I need Christ. This is not a call to asceticism of self, but a criticism of self, recognizing that you are not right before God and only the gospel can make you right. But notice what Jesus says. He says, this means that you take up his cross and follow me. Very plain language that would have been shocking to all of those that would have originally heard this. They understood what the cross symbolized. It was a symbol of rejection. It was used by the Romans for the worst criminals. And as you know, Mark writes this gospel to Christians residing in Rome, among their number were those crucified under Nero by crucifixions. Mark wants these readers to know the words of Jesus that this sort of crucified life will be worth it and is to be expected. And I want to say this morning, we probably will never be literally crucified. But Jesus does tell us to take up our cross And to crucify ourselves, to crucify our passions, our ambitions, perhaps even our dreams for the sake of Christ. What Jesus is saying here is that what criminals unwillingly did in Jesus' day, Christians are to willingly do. Picking up that that, uh, cross beam, putting it on our shoulders, walking to the place of judgment where the vertical post is, the place of execution, 
Doing it willingly, doing it joyfully, doing it spiritually, doing it for Christ. This would have hit home for the original hearers because crosses lined public highways as a reminder of of Caesar's imperial authority to judge disobedient citizens. But for those who are truly in the kingdom of God, the cross becomes a symbol that reminds Christians that Christ was judged in our place because of our disobedience. And so we gladly bear a cross of shame and suffering because we understand what Christ did for us. The bearing of the cross for Christians, and you need to understand this, has no atoning value. Only Christ's death offered full atonement. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. So Jesus is not saying anything in this verse about you paying for your sins through a life of suffering or through a life of shame or through a life of good works or God forbid through a life of asceticism. That is a misinterpretation of this. Nevertheless, bearing a cross of self-denial shows that we are slaves of Christ. It shows that we have followed our master, that we are totally devoted to him. The Christian's Via Dolorosa is the path of self-sacrifice, total submission to Christ. Because listen to me this morning, Jesus is no half-savior. He did not merely save you from hell, he saved you from sin. He transferred you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, if you are a true disciple. Now your desires, now your ambitions, now your passions, now your motivations are something entirely different than they were before. That's why we say you must repent to get into the kingdom of God. You've got to turn from the way that you are walking and turn toward Christ. And Christ says this will involve picking up a cross and following him no matter what it costs. And so the true follower of Christ must be willing, first of all, to accept persecution over prosperity. Secondly, he must be willing to accept eternal security over earthly safety. Worship of God instead of worship of self. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself take up his cross and follow me. Denying oneself and bearing a cross of suffering and shame like Christ does not mean we do it by human will. This is the consequence of true conversion, not the cause of true conversion. I want to be very clear about this this morning and I would rather just belabor the point than to be confused on this. Those truly converted were first regenerated by the Holy Spirit. You did not convert yourself. Just like you didn't birth yourself into the world, your parents had something to do with that. If you're a Christian today, your Father in Heaven had everything to do with your spiritual birth. And by the way, you can't take credit for your sanctification either because through regeneration, you are saved, and through sanctification, you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit so that works are not the root of salvation, but they are the fruit of it. The Holy Spirit doesn't leave us to our own resources. No, he enables us with the very power of God to walk like Christ, to live like Christ, to bear a cross like Christ, to live in total submission to the Father just as Jesus did. So on the one hand, Jesus is not merely our example. Otherwise, modeling what he did would be an attempt to earn our own salvation. But on the other hand, Jesus is not merely a savior. 
He saved us that we might look like him and act like him and even suffer like him. And he gives us the ability by the enabling power of the Holy Spirit to be conformed to him through the secret and sometimes subtle and gradual operation of the Spirit. So when Jesus says here in verse 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and following me, he is emphasizing human responsibility of the true follower of Christ after the Spirit of God has already sovereignly regenerated a soul. You remember Jesus' words to Peter in Matthew 16. We saw the great confession here in Mark chapter 8. But we looked at the parallel passage after Peter had confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the son of the living God. We read, Jesus answered, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. In other words, you can't even take credit for your confession. You can't even take credit for your faith in Christ. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. My Father in heaven revealed this to you. These are words of regeneration. These are words of the secret operation of the Spirit of God. And like Peter, we can't take credit for our salvation. Our salvation is the result of God's sovereign work. But nevertheless, we are called to walk like Christ through the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. So verse 34 is sort of the the main point or the proposition of the requirements to be a true disciple. If anyone would come after me, Jesus says, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Essential essential to true discipleship is self-denial. Now, flowing from this are four statements that clarify true discipleship and they all begin with the word for notice verse 35 for whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it second verse 36 for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul third verse 37 for what can a man give in return for his soul Number four, verse 38, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. So Jesus wants to be clear, discipleship begins with denying yourself, taking up your cross, following Jesus, submitting to him, following him, loving him, sacrificing for him, but what does that look like? Four statements clarify this discipleship. First of all, we see in verse 35 that losers in this life are keepers. Losers are keepers. Verse 35, for whoever would save his life, Jesus says, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Now, now you can't really see it in the English, but this is a chiastic structure in the Greek. But what you need to understand is that it presents really the grand paradox of life itself because conventional thinking says go for the gusto, live life to the fullest because it's all you have, but a true disciple of Christ has a different philosophy. To him, losing means keeping. The idea is that those wishing to save their status in life whether it's position, power, pleasure, fame, ambition, or even sin, Jesus says we'll lose it in the end. 
That in other words, nobody can take their status or their, their possessions with them out of this world. The last time I checked, a burial plot does not come complete with a rented storage unit. So whatever your status is, whatever your money is, whatever your possessions are, they are soon to be forgotten. Your possessions are either going to be inherited, given away, or they're going to waste away. Jesus says, whoever would save his life will lose it. On the other hand, whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. This simply means those who abandon the world's idea of a good life for the sake of Christ because they're willing to be persecuted for the gospel, if it comes to that, will prove they have eternal life. Someone who's not willing to do that will prove they don't have eternal life. And I would ask you that question this morning, what do you live for? Do you live for the weekends where you can do whatever you want to do? Spend whatever money you want to spend, go wherever you want to go, spend time with any friend you want to spend it with, or do you live for the weekends in the sense that you live for the Lord's Day, that you make a priority for Lord's Day worship, that you make a priority for the church in your life, to be a part of the church, that that is to, to lose what the world offers. And it's not just what you do on Sunday, it's Monday through Saturday, But Jesus said this, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. That's what Jesus means here in verse 35, forever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels will save it. Jesus is saying that losing oneself means willing to be, to give up everything for Christ. That nothing captures your attention or your affection more than Christ. You would rather let everything else go in this world than to lose Christ. And of course it's true that if we could let go of Christ, we would. If we could lose our salvation, we would. So the point here isn't that you keep yourself saved. The good news is is that he'll never let us go. But he did let Judas go. Because Judas didn't truly love him. And Judas proved he didn't truly love Christ because he gave him up for 30 pieces of silver. And he wanted the acclaim and the applause of the religious leaders. He was earthly focused. He had his mind set on the things of this world, not the things of God. And there are many throughout history who set their mind on riches and fame and money and possessions who will not inherit eternal life. Jesus spoke about this he told him a parable the land of a rich man produced plentifully and he thought to himself what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops and he said I will do this I will tear down my barns and build larger ones and there I will store all my grain and my goods this is a man of investment this is a man of great wealth this is a man who has all his affairs in line and he said I will do this And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. A true follower of Christ is not marked by worldliness. There is a laser-sharp focus 
of his or her life that follows Christ, that picks up the cross no matter what sacrifice and suffering it takes and is focused on glorifying Christ and living in submission to him. This person, Jesus says, who's willing to lose his life will save it. Whoever would save his life will lose it. The kingdom principle that Jesus is laying down is not finders, keepers, losers, weepers. It's losers, keepers, finders, weepers. If you lose your life, you will find it. But if you find your life, you will lose it and you will weep. Such is hard to accept, but what the Bible teaches. Revelation 21.7, the one who conquers will have a spiritual heritage and God says, I will be his God and he will be my son. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels will save it. So the first reason Jesus gives to show that true discipleship is worth it as he says that losers are keepers. Secondly, he says that the poor are actually rich. Notice verse 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Now that's a rhetorical question. The answer of which is obvious. No one would be this foolish. This is economics turned on their head and replaced with with spiritual economics. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? In other words, we may financially profit to a great degree. Indeed, hypothetically speaking to the point, we gain the whole world if that were possible. But Jesus tells us that if that is our focus, the mighty dollar, then we will forfeit our soul. I was reading a book recently that spoke about the West and the great accumulation of wealth in the West, that the West is full of the richest people from top to bottom who have ever lived on this earth, and yet the average person in the West dies with $10,000 in debt. Why is that? I'll tell you why. Because they are living for the riches of this world, and the riches of this world will never give them what they want. It will never be enough to satisfy And there are many professing Christians that live for the riches of this world. They are not satisfied with Christ. They are not satisfied with a life of shame and suffering and total submission. Your soul, Jesus is saying in verse 36, is the most valuable thing you own. So if you sacrifice it even to gain the whole world, you've exchanged what is invaluable, your soul, for what will pass away, which is the world. I say better to be bankrupt in this world than in the next. Living for the material pleasures of this life places a cheap price tag on your soul and your soul will be sold to hell if you are not careful. Because Jesus says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? The implication is there are many who try to do that. They try to gain everything from this world and they give up their soul in the process. And I want to say this as tenderly as I can but as emphatically as I can, that if your bank account, no matter how much is in it or is not in it, if your bank account is the most important thing to you, you are an idolater and very likely are not part of the kingdom of God. And if you continue down that sort of mindset and that focus with an unrepentant spirit, you will prove that you have sold your soul to the devil. 
You belong to him, you do not belong to God. And by the way, since we're talking about it, wasn't that the problem of the rich young ruler? He, he didn't understand eternity, the value of eternity. And therefore, he did not enter the kingdom of God. But there's more. Jesus gives a third reason that discipleship is worth it. Discipleship is denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following after Jesus. It's worth it because losers are keepers. Verse 35, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Secondly, the poor are actually rich. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? But third, we either give now or we pay later. Verse 37, for what can a man give in return for his soul? We either give now or we pay later. Eternity always comes with a cost. You either pay for it now or you'll pay for it later. In this statement in verse 37, for what can a man give in return for his soul? I think Jesus is implying that a life that gives now in a costly way for Christ and his kingdom will not be tormented in eternity with the regret that there is nothing he could possibly give to give his soul back. I mean, once in hell, he has nothing. He's been stripped of everything, even if he's rich. And even if he still had his possessions and still had his money, there would be no amount that could buy back time and buy back eternity and buy back his lost soul from the pit. It's all over. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed unto man to die once and after this, the judgment. And for all unbelievers, that is a terrifying thing. The author of Hebrews puts it this way, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God. He's profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. He's outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Jesus is saying, What can a man give in return for his soul? Give now or pay later. You're going to pay one way or another. But there's a fourth reason Jesus gives as to why discipleship is worth it. Denying oneself, picking up the cross and following after Jesus is worth it because losers are keepers. The spiritually poor or the spiritually rich give now or will pay later. Four, because shame now means shame later. Verse 38, four, there's that word again. The word for marks every one of these statements. For, let me clarify, Jesus says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Jesus will be ashamed of those who are ashamed of him. The flip side of this is that those who are not ashamed of him Hebrews 2.11 says he will not be ashamed to call his brothers. And Hebrews 11.16 says God will not be ashamed to call them his God because Jesus will always honor true servants. Turn with me over to John chapter 12 just for a moment. I want you to see these verses, this promise that Jesus gives. It's very 
similar language to what we read in Mark 8. And in verse 25, Jesus says of John 12, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And then here's the promise. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Or we could say the Father will not be ashamed of him. But whoever is ashamed of Christ, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him. And notice, Jesus says, the type of generation that does this is a, an adulterous and sinful generation. Th- that would have, uh, in Jesus' day, involved the religious leaders and all those who were following the religious leaders in their spiritual adultery. Throughout the Old Testament, the Bible describes idolatry as spiritual adultery. It is unfaithfulness to God. For example, Isaiah says, but you draw near sons of the sorceress, offspring of the adulterer, the loose woman. Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit? You who burn with lust among the oaks under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks, among the smooth stones of the valley is your portion. They, they are your lot. To them you have poured out a drink offering. You have brought a grain offering. Shall I relent of these things? Isaiah says, in your false worship, you have become spiritual adulterers. You are the offspring of the adulterer. The prophet Ezekiel speaks in very similar language to Israel about their adultery. He says, You are an adulterous wife. You receive strangers instead of your husband. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings. So you were different from other women in your whorings. No one solicited you to play the whore, and you gave payment while no payment was given to you. Therefore, you were different. Therefore, O prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because your lust was poured out and your nakedness uncovered and your whorings with your lovers and with your abominable idols and because of the blood of your children that gave to them, therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure and all those you loved and all those you hated. I will gather against you from every side. I will uncover your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness and I will judge you as women who commit adultery God's words to the nation of Israel constantly committing adultery they were a sinful and adulterous generation that is what marked Israel and during Jesus's day it's also what marked them they were spiritual adulterers Jeremiah says, the Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, have you seen what she did? That faithless one, Israel, how she went up on every high hill under every green tree and played the whore. And I thought after she has done all of this, she will return to me, but she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I'd sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. The Pharisees of Jesus' day were playing the whore. They didn't have physical idols, but they were worshiping their legalism and their traditions. And I want to tell you this morning that 
If you worship tradition over scripture, that will find you a place in hell. You are part of a sinful and adulterous generation. If you are a legalist, if you think you can do anything to inherit heaven on your own, you're no different than the Pharisees. They didn't have idols, but you know what they did? They worshiped the Sabbath day instead of the Lord of the Sabbath. They failed to understand that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, as Jesus says. God graciously gave the Sabbath a day of rest to remember God, but they turned it into a legalistic web of judging others, showing off their spirituality because of what they did or didn't do that day. That was an idol, the Sabbath. Tell you what else was an idol, fasting. What did they do when they fasted? They made their faces long. They made it appear that they were fasting. They wanted people to know. When they prayed, they made a big show of it. They were worshipers of self. They were idolaters. They were spiritual adulterers, worshiping their traditions, worshiping their legalism. The cumulative effect of all of this was a religion of self, not a religion of God. And such spiritual harlotry is alive and well in the church today. Jesus is saying, if you are ashamed of me in that way, and the word ashamed means to reject or despise, if you reject me in that way for your legalism, for your works righteousness, if you shame me in that way, I will shame you. When I come in glory with my Father and his holy angels. The verdict is still out for some professors, but they will be shamed on that day. He will reject and judge them because they will prove not to be true disciples, not trusting in the gospel alone for their salvation. Jesus had strong words for those who thought they were in the kingdom of God. He says this in Matthew's gospel, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. He'll separate people from one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from its goats. He will place the sheep on his right, the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry, feed you thirsty, give you drink? When did we see you a stranger, welcome you naked and clothe you? When did we seek you sick or a prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me no food. Thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you didn't welcome me. Naked, you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison, you didn't visit me. This is the judgment that will fall on false professors. Do others know that you're a Christian? The people you work with know that you are a Christian. Are you ashamed of the name of Christ? Jesus says, in that day, I will be ashamed of you. So what is discipleship? Verse 34, if anyone comes after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. A disciple recognizes it's worth it to follow Christ because losers in this life are actually keepers. The poor are rich. 
Those who give now don't have to pay later. And not being ashamed of Christ now means he won't be ashamed of us later. But let's go back to what the purpose of this passage was. The purpose of this passage was to show the purpose and mission of Christ. What is the purpose and mission of Christ? His purpose and mission was to come, to be rejected, to rise again after three days. What is the purpose and mission of his disciples? It is to follow after Christ in a similar life that he lived, being willing to suffer, being willing to be shamed, a life of total rejection, total submission. So we move from the rejection and the rebuke and the requirements now to the reassurance. There is hope for following Christ in this sort of sacrificial way and that hope is found in verse 1 of chapter 9. Notice your Bibles. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, many views abound as to what exactly Jesus is speaking about here. The most popular view today, the one you're probably most familiar with, says that Jesus is speaking about the transfiguration, which takes place immediately after this in verse 2 and following. You're familiar with that event. Jesus reveals himself to three of the apostles in a way that he didn't reveal himself to any of the other apostles. It was a monumental event that most would say was a powerful display of the glory and power of Christ's kingdom. And um, verse 1 of chapter 9 says that many were there that day that wouldn't taste death until they saw the kingdom of God come with power. So those in favor of Jesus viewing the transfiguration as the fulfillment of what he says in verse 1 say that the transfiguration was the most powerful display of the glory and power of Christ and of his kingdom that was ever seen in his entire earthly ministry. Notice again verse 1, Jesus says there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And many people will say he's referring to Peter, James, and John who alone witnessed this transfiguration. Now the problem with this view is that isn't the fact that only three of them saw it. That that much is true. But it's the fact that Jesus mentions here that some would not die until that event took place. Why would Jesus mention this? I don't think the disciples thought that Christ's life was in imminent danger. They didn't understand that deeply about the cross. They certainly didn't think that their own lives were in imminent danger. And the transfiguration, which takes place just a few days after this, makes Jesus' statement somewhat odd. Why would Jesus say, some of you won't taste death until you see this? That's like saying, don't worry, some of you won't die within the next week and are going to see this power and glory that I'm talking about. I don't think that makes sense. And even more to the point, you can't see it in English, but in the Greek, that phrase, come with power, is a perfect participle. So it has the idea of being that of power that comes and stays permanently. That's not what happened with the transfiguration. That was a vision, 
a preview of the future return of the Lord. And when it happened, it was a snapshot. It was there one moment and then it was gone. It wasn't permanent. Once the vision was over, the power was gone. The vision came and went. So I do not think that verse 1 of chapter 9 belongs in chapter 9. That's the best way that I can put it to you. I like what R.C. Sproul says. He says, sometimes I think the man who divided the Bible into chapters and verses was an itinerant Methodist minister in the wilderness who did the job while riding along on horseback and that he came to this portion of Mark as the sun was setting and lost track of where he was. Simply does not make sense to put this verse in chapter 9 rather than chapter 8. I can't prove that's what happened, but I agree with Sproul's sentiments. Some commentators say that um, Jesus' words here in verse 1, that some standing here will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power, is a reference to the resurrection because the resurrection was an obvious display of the power and the glory of Christ's kingdom, even more so than the transfiguration because it was seen by Many, many, many eyewitnesses. But again, the problem with this view is that Judas Iscariot is the only one that that died, that didn't see this event. All the other apostles standing there didn't taste death until they saw it. So I don't think these seeing about the resurrection in verse 1. Others see this prophecy as related to the healing and teaching ministry of Jesus. That that is the power of, And the glory of the kingdom that Jesus speaks about in verse 1, that some won't taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. But that doesn't fit, because in that sense, what Jesus says wouldn't be prophetic. He's already healed. He's already taught. All the disciples have witnessed the healing ministry of Jesus, the teaching ministry of Jesus. And it is true, back in Mark 1, Jesus said this time is fulfilled, verse 15, the kingdom of God is at hand. Through the teaching and preaching ministry of Jesus, the kingdom of God was at hand, but the full power and glory of that kingdom did not come to fruition. So I don't think it's speaking about the teaching and healing ministry of Jesus, this this kingdom of God that comes with power, that's so significant, Jesus would point it out. It's not his healing and teaching ministry. Another view says that, um, and this is the most popular reform view coming from John Calvin, adopted by others later in various forms, that Jesus' words here that some won't taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power is is a reference to a slew of events beginning with the resurrection, but then more fully seen in the pouring out of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. So Calvin says this, and I quote, The revelation of the heavenly glory which Christ began with the resurrection and then more fully offered when he sent the Holy Spirit and worked marvelous deeds of power is what is referred to here in chapter 9 and verse 1. Um, this view on the surface would, would make a, a lot of sense because of words like this that Paul says, Romans 1, 4, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. He was declared to be the Son of God in power by the resurrection from the dead. 2 Corinthians 13, 4, for he was crucified in weakness but lives by the power of God. 
He was raised by the power of God. Paul even says in Philippians 3.10 that he wants to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. So such is true enough. But again, Judas Iscariot was the only one that didn't see the resurrection and the Spirit of God poured out at Pentecost and all the other events. So there's another view. William Hendrickson, the famous reform commentator, takes Calvin's view and offers sort of a nuanced view. He views Jesus' prediction in verse 1 as referring to power that came with the resurrection, as Calvin says, and Pentecost, but it also includes Christ's ascension and the fact that he is ruling and reigning over the church now. Acts 17.6 says that the world was turned upside down after Christ's ascension. And Hendrickson says, and I quote, momentous events would occur, the becoming of the age of the church, its extension among the Gentiles, the conversion of people by the thousands, the presence and exercise of many charismatic gifts. Jesus predicts that all of this will begin to take place during the lifetime of some of those whom he is now addressing. Chapter 9 and verse 1. The royal reign of Christ after his ascension, rooted in his resurrection, was the linchpin that changed the world. And I think Kendrickson is right enough, true enough, but I don't think that's the best view. The view that I hold to agrees with Hendrickson and Calvin, but points forward to an additional specific event that also spoke with power to the world. Now what I'm going to tell you here in the time that we have left is of critical importance. Because everything that we've talked about up to this point in Mark's gospel is not going to be grasped with the clarity you need to grasp it without understanding this. Chapter 9, verse 1, although I don't think it belongs in chapter 9, is a pivotal, pivotal verse. It is not speaking about the transfiguration, all right? We'll talk about the transfiguration next week. Chapter 9, verse 1 is not speaking about that. It's talking about something else. And in order to understand that, you need to turn back with me to Matthew chapter 10, for a moment because Jesus uses similar language in other places and I'm just going to give you kind of a brief overview of this but enough to get you thinking Matthew chapter 10 Jesus makes some predictions now notice notice the language here in verse 21 He says, a time will come when brother will deliver brother over to death. The father is child. Children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. He refers to himself as the Son of Man, which by the way in Mark Eight, he's referred to himself as the son of man. And here in Matthew 10, Jesus stresses rejection, persecution, discipleship. He tells the disciples here that you, the end of verse 23, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the son of man comes. Really? You say to yourself, well, the son of man has not come back, his second coming, 
And yet the apostles made it all the way through the towns of Israel. So what in the world is going on here? Jesus says, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. The Son of Man has not returned. But they've all gone through Israel. Is God true to his word? Well, if Jesus was speaking purely about a future event, beyond the moment we sit in here now, then how could he say that they would not have gone through all the cities of Israel before he came. The disciples finished going through all those cities within the first generation of missions. So, did the Son of Man really come? Well, yes, he did. Turn over to Matthew 24. This is the Olivet Discourse. Another passage where Jesus makes similar predictions. Very critical, verses 1 and 2. Jesus left the temple... He was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. So they're pointing to him the buildings of the temple. And he answered them, you see all these? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus predicts here the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. He predicts a whole bunch of other things here. For example, he predicts in verse 14 that the gospel of this kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. Or verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of these days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heavens will be shaken, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. The elect from the four winds... Remember, verse 14 said, the gospel of the kingdom would be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. But then verse 32, from the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know the summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that it is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, now listen to this, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. What? The Son of Man is going to come, the trumpet's going to blow, the elect are going to be called, the temple's going to be destroyed, and it's all going to happen within that generation, within 40 years of Jesus making that prediction. That's what a generation was. The Son of Man will have come. The temple, which was viewed as indestructible, something God would protect, especially when the Messiah came, as it was understood, is here predicted to be destroyed. Jesus says all these things. What on earth is Jesus speaking about? Well, in Matthew 10, Jesus said the disciples would not have gone through all the cities of Israel before the Son of Man returns. Now in Matthew 24, that not all the people of that generation would die before the temple was destroyed and the Son of Man returned. And back to Mark 9, that some of his disciples would not taste death until they saw the glory and power of his kingdom manifested. Putting all of this together, a solution is possible. And here it is. Jesus was not predicting his final coming. When he spoke about the Son of Man coming in Matthew 24, 
In Matthew 10, he wasn't speaking about the final coming of the Son of Man before the disciples came through all the cities of Israel. And in Mark 9, he's not referring to the transfiguration as a preview to his final coming when he said when some would not taste death until they witnessed the kind of glory and power of Christ's kingdom. This must mean that Jesus was speaking about a first century coming of the Son of Man that involved a direct hand of his providence in destroying the temple through the instrumentation of the Roman army as an act of judgment on unbelieving Israel who rejected their Messiah. That's why that phrase in chapter 9 verse 1, people would see the kingdom of God after it has come with power That was a reference to the display of Christ's kingdom that came partly with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70 that occurred all within the generation of the apostles, some of which died and didn't see it. Some tasted death before they saw it. Some were still alive. What does Jesus refer to himself as in Mark 8, 31? The son of man. What does he refer to himself in Matthew 10 and Matthew 24? The Son of Man. The Son of Man will come. Why is that event so important, the destruction of the temple? Well, it was monumental. It was a sign that the kingdom of God had come with power because it spoke volumes to those in the world. Destruction of the temple is something that historians write about they can't believe happened. Why did it happen? It happened to show that Judaism is dead. It happened to show that Christianity was not some group of people that were part of a cult, but that Christianity was the fulfillment of all the promises God had made to Father Abraham. That the true Israel of God are those who look to Christ in faith. And because the ethnic Israel of God did not believe in their Messiah, they were judged. Their temple was destroyed. A direct act of God himself. And we read about this. I won't take the time this morning. Isaiah 13, Isaiah 30, Jeremiah 51, Malachi 3. Well, let's turn to Malachi because that is the last book. And... um, This is a critical passage. Malachi 3, Behold, I send my messenger. Remember, this is the last prophecy of the Old Testament. He will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his what? Temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi, refine them like gold and silver. They will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord in the days of old. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. The Lord will come to his temple and judge it. And what did Jesus do? He made a whip and chased out the money changers. And then his disciples said, look at the temple. And Jesus said, yeah, look at the temple. This temple is going to be destroyed. It's going to be destroyed. An act of judgment. 
What Jesus therefore offers here in chapter 9 verse 1 is reassurance. That's what I want you to see, reassurance. That though as a true follower of Christ you may be persecuted, you may be rejected, Christ is ruling and reigning, he has been raised from the dead, he ascended to the right hand of God, He destroyed the temple in Jerusalem as a sign of the establishment of his reign, of his rule. The kingdoms of this world, the nations of this world are coming to Christ. The covenants of the Old Testament are fulfilled in Christ. People of every nation is being converted. Souls are coming in. The gospel has reached the ends of the earth. Such gives us reassurance. Such gives us hope. Christ is ruling and reigning in the midst of all that is bad going on in the world, even in the worst of it, even in persecution. What did Stephen say when he was stoned? Acts 7.56, he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What Jesus is saying in chapter 9 and verse 1 is that some standing here aren't going to taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. There is coming an epic and an era in redemptive history the likes of which you have never seen. When Christ is crucified and raised, he will call all his people to himself. He will rule and he will reign. Folks, this is why we shouldn't be downtrodden about events in the world. This is why we shouldn't be depressed about the future. All wars have consequences and casualties, and the final outcome is always in doubt, but not Jesus' war with Satan. Pages of Providence tell us that he will win. And there are events throughout history, the resurrection, the ascension, Pentecost, the destruction of the temple, in which God is giving us reassuring hope. He calls his people to embrace his kingdom and he says embracing my kingdom means embracing my cross. It means embracing suffering, persecution if need be, but don't worry, I'm in control. I am the son of man, ruling and reigning. There is only one kingdom and I've already won. Calling all people to myself. It will be worth it. We are to live with that sort of assurance. We are to live with that sort of hope. Even as we bear our cross and follow after Christ, we are to know that there is this one true king, son of man, who reigns above us. He reigns over us and he reigns for us. And he calls us to be faithful. May we be faithful to whatever he calls us to. Father, we thank you for the power of your word. Lord, there's so much that we didn't say that we perhaps should have said. We're overcome, Lord. We're overwhelmed with the high standards of discipleship. And yet at the same time, the reassuring words of promise that all will be okay. Lord, we can sacrifice anything and everything for you because it will be worth it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? 
Lord, those of us who know you know the value of our souls. We know this world is passing away. We thank you that we can live with that assurance, that hope. And yet, Lord, we recognize there might be some here who can't live with that. There might be some here who haven't denied themselves, taken up the cross and followed you. They're holding on to something. Lord, we pray that by the secret operation of your spirit, you would call your elect to yourself. Lord, break the shackles of sin and hearts. Reveal the glory of Christ, the value of Christ, the hopelessness of this world and the things of this world. Seal these truths to our hearts, Lord, as we sing this hymn. This hymn of response is meant to be a prayer. So, Father, help us to sing it with full hope in Christ, for he is our rock of ages. We pray these things in his holy name. Amen. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.